I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 together this evening. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Before reading God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to gather on each Lord's Day, morning and typically evening, to study your word together. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. We acknowledge our need for your word. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit who comforts, who nourishes, who enlightens mind and heart to understand and to apply. And we acknowledge our need for his work in our lives. Whether we have come to faith in Christ recently or many, many years ago, we are forever dependent upon the faithful, sovereign work of the Spirit. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, in, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, if you were to write a research paper for school... Or as a parent, if you were to help your child think through how that research paper was to be formulated, you would spend a significant amount of time formulating your thesis statement. And it's that thesis that sets the tone for everything else that follows. And everything else in the paper is meant to read back and support that thesis point. Now, John's thesis, if we were to put it like that, is one who is an eyewitness to these events, who is writing, in many ways, a research of the life of Christ. Really, the thrust of his gospel is captured for us at the end of this book in chapter 20, verse 31, where we read, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And then to build this thesis, to prove his point, John gives attention to two main things from the life of Jesus, discourses 
public forms of instruction, and miraculous signs. Through these two, signs and teachings, we see clearly Jesus as Messiah. And we hear the call throughout John's gospel as to what our response is to be, namely to believe. And what is belief? Well, belief is transfer of trust. It's understanding that Jesus is who he claims to be. But it's also resting in him. It's understanding his work as substitutionary in nature. Now, here in chapter 5, we come to the third miraculous sign that John records from the public ministry of Jesus. There was the turning of water into wine back in chapter 2. There was the healing of the official's son at the end of chapter 4. And now the healing of the lame man here in the fifth chapter. And so as we consider this third sign in John's gospel tonight, let's see what we learn about the Lord Jesus in his compassion and in his power. And as we dwell and give consideration to the power, compassion, and authority of Jesus displayed in the life of this man, since it's our Lord who is unchanging in nature, it is the same compassion, mercy, love, and so forth that we can draw from as we consider how to apply that to our own lives. Now, first, let's look at the setting of this miraculous event in verses 1 through 5, the setting of this miracle. Now, while the synoptic gospels do not seem to be as concerned with the strict chronological unfolding of Jesus' public ministry, John does seem to give a bit more attention to the sequential events in the life of Jesus. And so back in chapter 2, Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. He then has that dialogue with Nicodemus in chapter 3, in which he talks about the necessity of rebirth in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 4, Jesus makes his way north, stopping in Samaria, having his conversation with the woman at the well. Then he arrives in Cana of Galilee and heals the official son. So when we find Jesus now here in chapter 5, we read that he is back in Jerusalem for another feast. Although we can't be certain what feast John has in mind. It could be the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, which is seven weeks after Passover. But we're not certain about that. But we do read in verses 2 and 3 that at this particular pool, this pool of Bethesda, there is a regular gathering of those who have various needs. And no doubt this number who would congregate at this pool would increase when the population swells as the Israelites would come for the annual feast time. And so here are invalids who might experience severe ailments, such as blindness, paralysis, inability to walk. And the important thing to notice from Jesus right away, as we see him at this pool of water, is that he is the one who takes the initiative in helping this man. Here is one who for 38 years has been an invalid. Now, whenever you read details like that, 38 years he was an invalid, five covered colonnades and so forth, John doesn't just include those as sort of extraneous details to make his letter a little bit or his book a little bit more filled. But he does that to testify that he is an eyewitness to these events. And so that feeds our confidence that we are truly reading historical true events in the life of Christ. Now, we don't know what particular type of ailment this man is suffering with, but we assume it's some sort of paralysis because he is laying upon a mat and unable to move without the help of another. 
We don't know how long he's been coming to this particular pool, hoping for healing. But he's here regularly, longing and waiting for some miraculous intervention. Verse 6 says that he has been here a long time. Maybe the man doesn't even remember how long he himself has been coming here. And as Jesus takes the initiative, seeking this man out, notice what we learn about the nature of Jesus. We see Jesus' love, and we see his kindness. Jesus is the one who pursues him. Jesus is the one who comes to the pool to seek the man out. The man is not searching for Jesus, like the official did earlier back in chapter 4 when he came to Jesus for the sake of his son who was near death. Instead, the man doesn't even know who Jesus is. Even after he receives healing from Christ, he lacks knowledge of Jesus' identity. We see that in verse 13. What we learn here from Jesus is what we could call the reassuring doctrine of God's sovereign purpose. The sovereign purpose of electing grace. It's out of the infinite love of the Son that he seeks and saves those who were given to him by the Father. And this infinite love is an interworking of the triune nature of God. There is no conflict here as though the Father simply has wrath directed towards those who have broken his law while the Son needs to intervene on on the behalf of those who have sinned against the Father. But rather, it is the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit working to bring redemption into the lives of God's people. Now look ahead for a moment to chapter 6, if you'll just turn the page. It's here in chapter 6 where we see clear teaching on this comforting doctrine of effectual calling. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, this divine initiative of sovereign grace truly is a comfort to God's people, isn't it? To know that our salvation does not depend upon our choice of Jesus, our initiative toward him, but it is his grace to save. And as we understand that it is his grace intruding into our lives, that is what brings us real and lasting assurance. And so Jesus seeks out this man who is broken and who is needy. Now, as we read this text, you might have noticed that there is a verse missing from your text, that we went straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Some of your translations might have a footnote there at the bottom where you read verse 4 where it says something like that those who were there at the pool were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord would come down at certain seasons to the pool and stir the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the waters was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the reason that this verse is left out of the text is because it doesn't appear in the more reliable manuscripts. And that's the simplest way of putting it without getting into a lot of textual critical issues. But I think the best way to think of it is that it's more of a superstitious view of the pool of water. 
that there was either some sort of a natural spring or underground piping system that led to the occasional stirring of the waters. It may have happened regularly in some sort of a predictable way, or it may have just happened at periodic intervals. But the belief that arose over time was that this stirring of the waters was evidence of an angel coming to heal whoever was the first to get into this pool of water. Now, besides the textual concerns with verse 4, I think there are also theological reasons why we should continue to leave this as just a footnote and not something that belongs in the authoritative text. We don't want to consider this, in other words, as making a theological statement of fact. You see, first of all, we never read of an angel being given the task of miraculous healing. Now, that's not to say that God couldn't charge an angel with such a task. We just don't read that in Scripture. And further, when we do come across miraculous healings in the Bible, whether we go back to the books of Kings in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, whether it's the ministry of Christ himself in the New Testament, whether it's the ministry of the apostles as they are charged and given the authority in Jesus' name to perform miraculous things. In all of those, we could say that those healings are always personally directed toward the one who is healed. And so this stirring of the waters just seems to be too arbitrary and impersonal. As you saw from that verse, it's just whoever happens to get into the water first that finds healing. Again, it just doesn't fit with the Lord's nature and the way that he operates throughout the rest of Scripture. And so if anything, it's best for us to understand this as simply a superstitious view. Now, whatever the man thought, I think it's clear from the text that he viewed this stirring of the waters as the means to find healing for his condition. His gaze, you see, is set upon this pool of water. And the belief is, is that this is the only way to find healing. Perhaps this is why later he isn't able to identify Jesus, because he is so fixated upon the pool as the means to healing that Jesus is not even in his purview of sight. And yet the amazing love of the Savior is that Jesus' gaze is fixed upon the one he is about to heal. Here is the eternal Son of God, the creator and the sustainer of all, the one who has power over all things standing right next to the man. But the man misses him completely because this is not where he is focused. Jesus is right here in the pages of Scripture, and yet how many have overlooked him and failed to see him as the only hope for our lost condition? Second, notice the question of Jesus in verse 6. Jesus seeks the man out and says to him, do you want to be healed? Now think about that question for a moment. It seems pretty obvious that the man wants to be healed, doesn't it? He's here with regularity. He's been coming for a long time. Isn't it obvious that he wants to be healed? So why does Jesus ask him this question? Well, I think the question is meant to expose the inner nature of the man. It's meant to reveal the true object of his faith, to consider what his motives deep within his heart are all about, which at this particular moment is simply focusing upon a pool of water. And so perhaps what Jesus is doing is really pressing the man to see what his greatest need is all about. Do you want to be healed? 
Do you recognize the deep need that you have that goes even beyond this issue of paralysis and physical suffering? Do you understand that any level of suffering that we might go through in this life is evidence of living in a sin-cursed world? And such suffering is meant to point us beyond itself to show us what our deepest need is all about. Do you understand that there is only one who can heal, only one who can forgive, because that is what you truly need? Well, what about you? Imagine Jesus coming to you and asking you the same question. Do you want to be healed? You might reply, well, I'm no paralytic on a mat. I really don't have anything that significant in my life that needs to be addressed right now. I'm doing okay. I might have suggestions for you on other people in my life who could use some attention. But if that's how you might assess yourself, you don't really see your true condition for what it is. Or you might reply, I suppose there might be certain things in life that could use some attention, maybe some social issues, even some behavioral quirks that I know aren't perfect, but I've just sort of come to the realization that this is who I am. I'm trying to learn contentment with myself, and everyone else should try to do the same. This is just how I am. I'll get used to it. If that's how you might process your need for healing, then you're really failing to set your gaze upon the power and wonder of the Savior. This is really a question that John's gospel holds out to each one of us. It's a question that Jesus poses to everyone. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you see clearly that you need healing, that you need forgiveness? Or do you presume that this is just your lot in life and this is the best that it's going to be? In which case, perhaps you simply want to be left alone. In the case of the invalid, he's sort of looking at life with these blinders on. This is my only option. This pool of water is the only opportunity that I have to experience change. I can't really do anything about it. Everyone else gets in there before me. There's no hope of change. This is just where I am in life. And so the question of Jesus, again, is meant to expose his hopelessness and this false source of healing that the man is looking toward. And then notice what happens next. Thirdly, Jesus' commandments to the man in verse 8. Jesus speaks with authority, and the man is immediately healed. Take up your bed and walk. It's not a question. It's not a suggestion. But it's a command. And as a command from the lips of the Savior, it necessitates an effectual response. Now think of how remarkable this is. He has not had his use of limbs for 38 years. His muscles are atrophied. The blood doesn't flow properly through his body, and it pools at different parts of his body, creating great pain and possible infection. No doubt he's had pressure ulcers from sitting and laying upon his mat for hours at a time. This is someone who has been in this debilitating condition for 38 years. And at the power of Jesus' words, and his words alone, the man is restored. Jesus knows the source of his paralysis, and in the very fabric of his physical body, he is immediately restored to full health, and he walks. And significantly, it is healing and restoration that precedes any expression of faith on his part. 
Just as Jesus knows the source of this man's physical problems and heals them immediately, Jesus knows what our problem is at the very core of our being, and he renews us in his sovereign grace. Now, as a miraculous sign, again, as John calls these miracles of Jesus signs, they are meant to point beyond themselves to the work of our Savior, that Jesus is the one who has come to atone for our sins, that he has come to reverse the effects of the fall, that he has come to restore things to the rightful way that they are supposed to be. But even in the most hopeless of situations, here is Jesus. Even with seemingly impossible obstacles, here is Jesus. Even with the most polished excuses, here is Jesus. Just as the wind and the waves obey the voice of Jesus later in chapter 6 when he's on the sea with his disciples in the midst of the raging storm, and at the power of his voice, the creation can do nothing but simply obey Jesus here has the power and authority to restore this man. Everything in all creation is subject to his power and authority. He speaks and it comes to be. As we think about the amazing, miraculous things that Jesus does in his earthly ministry, if there is no sense of awe before his power and before his grace, if a narrative such as this fails to stir your heart, then perhaps you too are living with those blinders on, failing to see the fullness of the Savior who alone can heal, who alone can forgive. And this leads us fourthly to the conflict that results with the religious leaders. Notice next at the end of verse 9 and then on into verse 10 that we see the man's encounter with the Jews who rebuke him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. The remarkable thing is that they fail to see the amazing act of healing Jesus has just performed for this man. They don't seem to care at all that this man who has been unable to walk for 38 years is suddenly, instantly, miraculously healed. All they care about is that he is carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. So what is all this about? Why are they so upset about this apparent violation of the Sabbath? Well, we need to spend a few moments here because as we read later in verse 18, there are two things that contribute to their hatred of Jesus. One is this violation that they see Jesus performing against the Sabbath. And two, they hear his claims to be equal with God. And as a result of these two things, they have such hatred toward Jesus, which continues to escalate throughout Jesus' earthly ministry to the point that they murder him murderous hatred that leads to the crucifixion. So what is the Sabbath, and what is its purpose? Well, the Sabbath, of course, was the seventh day of the week, the day upon which the Lord rested from his work of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And so we call the Sabbath a creation ordinance. It's a day that is set apart for God's people to worship him, to remember their identity in him. As the seventh day of the week, at the end of the week, it was a day in which God's people looked ahead to his work of redemption that he will accomplish on their behalf, a work that they must look to, that they are to rest in his redemption on their behalf. But now in our own time, since the finished work of the Lord Jesus, we gather, of course, on the first day of the week, 
the day of his resurrection from the dead, a day in which we look back and remember his finished work for us. Well, at the same time, we look ahead to that day in which he will return at the end of the age. And so we look back to his work for us, resting in his completed work on our behalf, resting, worshiping the Lord. We're acknowledging our helplessness. We're acknowledging our need for his work on our behalf and that Jesus himself is the ultimate Sabbath rest. Now, history, as we know, is not going to go on like this as it is forever. A day is coming in which time as we know it will cease. A time is coming in which we will enter into this promised Sabbath rest for all of eternity, resting from our labors, resting from our toils, resting from our trials and hardships, resting in the glorious presence of our risen Savior for all of eternity. This is where history is moving for God's people. But the Sabbath had become distorted by the time of Jesus' public ministry. Instead of being a day where we rest in the work of the Lord on our behalf, it became a way in which the Jewish people thought that they could attain such rest on their own. It had become an identity marker for them, something that they believed set them apart in their own pride against other people. The Sabbath became a test, almost a litmus test of one's true holiness and religious maturity. The Sabbath was no longer a delight in worshiping God, but the Sabbath was turned into an oppressive, legalistic, burdensome requirement. And many Jews thought that their keeping of the Sabbath earned their favor with God, while a failure to keep the Sabbath led to his displeasure and judgment. Sinclair Ferguson says that legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. And we see that in the religious leaders and the way in which they thought of the Sabbath. And so regulation upon regulation was added to the Jewish law in an attempt to show righteous obedience to the Sabbath. And not only that, they would create man-made laws on top of God's law, then creating loopholes so that they could keep the very law that they constructed. For example, any medical work that was not an emergency was considered labor upon the Sabbath day. If you had a toothache, that was considered non-medical emergency. And so you were not supposed to do anything to relieve that pain. Normally, you would put vinegar upon your tooth in order to alleviate the discomfort. But it's okay to eat on the Sabbath day, so you just dump a bunch of vinegar on your food as you're eating it, and then you're okay. Such regulations conveyed that God's law was a peripheral part of life, never penetrating the heart. One could keep the letter of the law while violating the spirit of the law. In Woody Allen's movie Radio Days, As he's explaining the Sabbath to his son, he says, For 24 hours, you're supposed to do nothing. You can't even turn on a light switch. Just sit and fast and pray and atone for your sins. And then the son asks his father, What about the neighbors who are outside washing their car and playing loud music on the Sabbath? And the grandfather who's sitting there with them says, What do they care? They're communists. They don't believe in religion. The grandfather then remarks, I'd like to go over there and burn their house down, but I'm not allowed to light a match on the Sabbath. (laughs) See, for the man here in John chapter 5, 
carrying the mat was considered work because he was carrying a burden. But the reality is this man had been carrying a burden, a physical ailment for 38 years. Carrying his mat was no burden at all, but was evidence that he had been freed from that burden, evidence that he had met the Savior. Now, when we think of the way that these religious leaders approach the Sabbath, it might seem somewhat far removed from our own lives and our own cultural setting. We might have difficulty drawing a connection between this ancient view of the Sabbath and the way that modern man lives in a culture today because our own culture couldn't care less about what happens on the Sabbath day. But it really gets at the most fundamental matter before the human race. If you think of it like this, you see the question, the ultimate question before us is this, how can I be made right with God? Now, whether that's a question that someone asks explicitly or not, this is the question that plagues humanity. This is the question that weighs upon our conscience. And left to ourselves, we will conjure up some formula in order to ascend to God, some formula to bring us peace with ourselves, with God, or with others. Whether it's morality and obedience, whether it's ritual and religious rite, whether it's personal achievement and success. And so for modern man, the issue may not be Sabbath-keeping, but the underlying assumption is the same. There is something that I can do. There is something that I must do to get to God or to better myself in His sight. Self-salvation is the default of the human heart. And while we might not think that Sabbath-keeping is the key, There is a sense in which we all tend to rest in our own efforts, to look to them as somehow bettering us in the sight of God or before others. Now, one final word of Jesus to consider in verse 14. Here, Jesus finds the man in the temple and he tells him, sin no more so that something worse may not happen to you. Now, scholars debate upon what this tells us about the man. And we know that not all ailments are the result of some particular sin. Later in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, the disciples, you might remember, asked the question, who sinned, this guy or his parents? There has to be some reason as to why he was born blind. And Jesus' response is, well, neither, but it's so that God might be glorified through this. But of course, it is possible that someone's condition of suffering is the direct result of some foolish, sinful choice in his life. So was he an invalid for 38 years because of some sin he had committed? Was he perhaps trampled as he was trying to steal someone's cow? Did he fall out of someone's window as he was trying to break in and steal something from them? Does Jesus see him later in the temple area and knowing his heart and knowing his past tell the man that he better shape up or he's going to face even worse paralysis in the future? I don't think that's what's going on. I think rather what we have to understand is as we were saying, as I was saying earlier, the purpose for Jesus' healing. He never heals simply for the sake of healing. But the physical healing he offers is always meant to help us understand the greater need within our own hearts for forgiveness and for cleansing. And so it's really just the necessity of repentance, as we heard from our sermon this morning. 
the necessity of repentance as evidence of true faith in Christ. As we read throughout the book of 1 John, no one who knows God goes on sinning. To live in sin is to show that one standing before God is to remain under his wrath and condemnation. So in other words, what Jesus is saying to the man is, see that your real problem is the sin in your life. That's what you need to be broken over. That's what you need to repent of. To continue to live in sin is to show yourself to be apart from Christ. And if you are apart from Christ, then the day of judgment is coming upon you. And that is something that is much, much worse than a condition of paralysis for 38 years. And in the rest of the narrative, all we know is that the man from here goes and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. We don't know what his motives are. There's all sorts of speculation that perhaps it was out of fear for what the Jews might do to him that he went and sort of told on Jesus. Or it could have been that he wanted to testify that this is the Savior whom he has found and he wants to bear witness to Christ. We're not certain the long-term effects upon the man's encounter with Christ. But really, the text is pressing us as the reader to consider the words of Jesus upon our own life. How are you thinking of the sin in your own life? How are you going to respond to the grace extended to you? Do you want to be healed? Do you know true forgiveness and healing? Do you long to know the one who has forgiven you? Do you long to know the one who has healed you? Are you living a life of humility before the one who has been so gracious and kind to you? Or instead, do you tend to live with a proud, arrogant, entitled, blame-shifting attitude? Consider your own standing before God and your need to see Jesus as the only one who can forgive. The only one who can meet your deepest need. The only one who can offer true forgiveness of sins. The only hope for any of us is faith and repentance in the Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the comforts that your word brings to us, recorded here upon the pages of Scripture. May we, when we read such texts as this from the gospel narratives, see more clearly our Savior, our need for him, his great compassion and mercy, not to treat us as our sins deserve, but as one who has removed them as far as the east is from the west. And may we look to him in faith and repentance, whether for the first time or again and again, and may we never tire of doing so. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.